This episode was recorded on Wajak Nungabuja. Hi, I'm Beth, and you're listening to Elements. In this season, we're talking all about fire, and this is episode four. Some theories say that harnessing fire is what made us human. Early people would have gathered around fires for warmth, light and protection. It's also been theorised that being able to cook over a flame is what allowed Homo sapiens to evolve our big, energy-hungry brains. It's easy to think of manipulating fire, cooking and using tools as exclusively human activities. However, some species of animal are also part of the fire-wielding club. Some are able to directly influence the fire in their immediate environment, while others simply take advantage of it. In this episode, Cat Williams chats to us about two animals that harness fire in surprising ways, and one animal we've tenuously linked to because it has fire in its name. We're going with it. It's really cool. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are warned that this podcast contains the name of a person who has died. The Kimberley region spreads across the entire northwest corner of Australia, occupying hundreds of thousands of square kilometres. Being a 30-hour drive from Perth, it may seem incredibly remote and empty, but really, it is rich in nature, culture and spirit. Here, you'll find ancient landscapes with everything from desert to lush monsoon rainforests. These landscapes are all shaped by fire, unburnt and burnt areas creating a patchwork quilt across the land. These burnt areas, called fire scars, look like dark, black clouds against the much lighter vegetation. We're venturing onto Undunyan, Gija and Bunaba country in the Kimberleys. People from these areas have been using fire for hunting and ceremony for tens of thousands of years. But now, with climate change, there are bigger, more dangerous fires. But there's one animal that is surprisingly killing the game and thriving in these bigger fires, feral cats. Feral cats have been using these fire scars as hunting grounds. Dr Hugh McGregor is a field ecologist and spoke to me about his research on cats and fire scars. Yeah, so my work was uh, really piggybacking on the work that AWC had doing, been doing up in the Kimberley and their wildlife sanctuaries up there for about 10 years prior to before I came up there. And then we're finding some pretty strong patterns of intense fire scars and native small mammals declining after those intense fires. Um, so we already have a very strong suspicion that this is what was going on. The AWC that Hugh is referring to is the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, who have reserves across Australia and research wildlife in these areas. I was sort of midway through a trapping program when a giant fire started occurring in a very important habitat, not too far from where the main sanctuary base was. So we all had to put down our tools and we spent the next two weeks fighting this very big fire. Um, and two weeks later, I come back, the fire's finished, I go back to try and retract the cats I'd caught. This is about 15 kilometres away. I couldn't find them anymore. Hugh explained that he was concerned that he'd lost a cat with a $3,000 collar on. He couldn't find the cat for a few months, but lo and behold... Two months later, the cat's back, back in its home range. So, OK, cool. Went down and chased the cat down, got his data... And he had gone to the very fire scar that I'd been fighting, you know, like a couple, you know, a few months earlier. 
there was this massive fire scar and it just traveled this like massive long distance over a giant mountain range to go hunt on the boundary of this fire scar. And so I think it was after that that we started, okay, this is, there's something going on here and it's probably pretty strong too. Hugh then described the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy type journeys the cats took to get to the fire scar to hunt. So we had a lot of cats doing long distance journeys to fire scars. But almost every one of them seemed to be different. We had one cat that um, travelled directly, like almost direct straight line, uh, to get to a fire scar. And, and but, it, but it left about a month after the fire was occurred. So it couldn't have been travelling the smoke or the fire. Uh, another cat climbed a hill. And then you see it like, walk up a hill, and then there was a fire scar would have been visible a couple of k's away, and then it walked to the fire scar. Another cat just simply had its home range up on a hill, and when the fire came through, it just moved its home range down. There was no basic explanation for all this. Cats are very territorial creatures. They are solitary and have strict territories or home ranges, which is why it was so surprising that these cats had travelled so far to hunt. I couldn't help but wonder how a cat had sensed a fire over 15 kilometres away a month after a fire had happened to hunt at the fire scar. So how does this happen? We have no idea. They couldn't have smelt the fire because there's a lot, lot often the time they'd travel a long time after the fire. They might have been seeing the glow. This is what I mainly suspect is they probably just had multiple things that they were referring to. And um, I have no evidence for this, but I also suspect cats can communicate to some level because I've seen multiple things where it's like, how did that cat know about that thing well outside its home range? But is this communication an out loud operatic performance? <laughs> no. I've heard them make noises twice. One time a cat tried to attack a, well, I don't know what the prey was, but it tried to pounce on something and it missed and it just said, Meow. and which I'm pretty sure I know what that translates to. In the wild, they do not vocalise much. They are quiet. So the cats are potentially secretly communicating and can sense fires up to 15 kilometres away. But what does this mean for the small animals that these cats hunt? When animals are most vulnerable, cats can come from all over the place and hunt the small mammals there. Because in the Kimberley, we're talking a very low density of cats. We're talking about one cat per every five square kilometres. There's something like a 20-fold increase in predation uh, impacts after the fire. It just sort of means that a low density of cats can have a big impact on population. With feral cats having such a big impact on Australian environments, I was wondering if there was any new technologies being developed to help small mammals in their fight against feral cats. But Hugh said... Um, probably almost the opposite. A revert backing to... So when Aboriginal people throughout Northern Australia were still managing and, and burning the land, you'd have lots of fire scars... But every fire would usually come up to another small fire scar. There was a, a, an intricate patchwork of mosaic burning. It just means that, you know, sure, maybe at the spot of the fire, the animals are more vulnerable, but the fires wouldn't be very big. So there are heaps of unburnt vegetation in the area where small mammals could recover. It's worth noting that every time we speak about conservation in Australia, Indigenous burning practices are raised. It shows the deep connection to country that First Nations people have and how well they care for country, even with all of the damage that feral cats can do. Whilst the cats wait for a fire to finish so that they can hunt, there's another animal in the Kimberley region that actually helps to spread fire for hunting, 
pyromaniac birds, also called firehawks. Yep, you heard me right. Pyromaniac birds. Black kites, whistling kites and brown falcons are all common firehawks found in the Kimberley region and across northern Australia. Firehawk is a general term for a group of birds that use sticks to move fire to catch their prey. Although it sounds crazy that a bird would actively go near a fire, let alone use it as a tool, geographer Mark Bonta has an explanation. You know, fires are, are attractors for birds across, um, you know, the tropical savannas of the world, really, not just northern Australia. You know, a fire starts up and within a few minutes, birds start to show up. And then within this, you have uh, some species that every once in a while is rather rare tool-using behaviour. These birds use the flaming sticks to manipulate the fires to catch their prey more easily. They can eat anything from insects to snakes. The black kites and the whistling kites are going after a lot of the things flying up into the air, the grasshoppers and so forth. This massive cloud of bugs that wafts up hundreds of you know meters. And so they're getting that. But with the, uh, the lizards, particularly the snakes and the lizards and so forth, but, you know, later on after it burns off, you go back the next day and they're just sitting, they're sitting around as well as smoking ruins of these, you know, these brush fires. And they're just picking off basically a buffet of charred uh, animals. These birds are master chefs cooking a buffet, as Mark said, and then snatching prey off the ground or out of the air. But how do they actually utilise the fire for this? Fire hawks are able to transport fire on the end of a stick, like a flaming torch, either in their beak or talons. I couldn't imagine running around with a flaming torch in my mouth or between my toes and was concerned that the birds could cook themselves alive. Well, like like any sort of um, risky behaviour that a bird uh, uh, engages in, I mean, they're, they're obviously very smart and they know what they're doing. There's fire raging all around, you know, they're flying out and flying. I mean, it's, it's really unbelievable to think how they can, you know, they're, they're up close to the fire. And so... Uh, there, there was some thinking that, you know, their, their, their skin is somewhat resistant to it. A bird that is resistant to fire? That seemed a bit far-fetched, so I had to do some follow-up research. Why I ever doubted an expert is beyond me, but the skin on a bird's feet can be resistant to fire for around one to two minutes. A few years ago, when Black Summer was raging in the eastern states, Mark was contacted by some tabloid newspapers. They were asking if these birds were at fault. But that's the southern side of Australia. You know, we're talking about the northern side of Australia, the tropical and subtropical side. I mean, it it is apples and oranges. These fire spreading behaviours have only been noted in northern Australia. Firehawks can't start fires, but if they spread a fire, this is a good thing. By having more frequent but smaller fires, they burn at a cooler temperature doing less damage to the landscape than a massive bushfire. Firehawks play a major role in Aboriginal dreaming stories. Biddy Lindsay, who has now passed away, was a traditional owner from Malak Malak and Mantgala country. She wrote the book Malak Malak and Mantgala Plants and Animals, Aboriginal Flora and Fauna Knowledge from the Daly River Area and describes the Firehawk Dreamtime story. I don't have permission to tell this story, but you can find her book in libraries across Australia. It's credited in Aboriginal belief as the bird that basically taught humans how to do this, how to do what's called fire stick farming, right? And so, you know, in that, you're you're cleaning out areas uh, that, that uh, 
you're burning them so that they don't burn later on. Uh, raptors are making these judgments to be able to spread fires farther than they would otherwise. Obviously, they're not starting them from scratch. Well, at least the birds don't know how to use matches. This episode is all about animals and fire. So prepare yourselves for the most tenuous link we've made yet. Fire ants. They have fire in the name, so it's good enough for me. Fire ants are an invasive pest species that are now found on every continent except Antarctica. Given the high biosecurity risk, I reached out to the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development, but they refused to talk to me and instead tried to talk to me about oysters. Then, I tried the Department of Agriculture in Queensland, as they are heading up the National Fire Ant Eradication Program, but they refused to speak to me as well. In fact, the Department of Agriculture in Victoria wouldn't talk either. Finally, I managed to get on to someone at the Invasive Species Council, Reese Pianta. Reese tells me that people often think that fire ants get their name from running around causing bushfires or that because they can attack electrical infrastructure, that could cause sparks and start a fire. But they're really called fire ants because if you get bitten by one, it's not just by one. You get bitten by a whole swarm and people have reported that it feels like their body is on fire. But what do they look like? So fire ants are pretty distinctive um, and they're a bit different from a lot of uh, Australian ants. They're a coppery brown colour. Uh, they're about two to six millimetres in length. And uh, one of the things that really distinguishes them is that their uh, mounds, their nests, often don't have an obvious entry or exit point. Uh, they often form sort of a dome and they use foraging tunnels underneath the ground that can go for quite a long way in each direction. Fire ants are an invasive species hailing from South America. So they come from the Pantanal region there, which is the world's largest um, floodland environment. They got into the United States in the 1930s through shipments of freight, and from there came to Australia at some point in the late 1990s. And, uh, they were identified in 2001 at the port of Brisbane. That's how they got here, and uh, they've been a problem ever since. Whilst the fire ants epidemic started in Queensland, they were found in Wyalup at Fremantle Port in 2019. Having spoken to the project team over there, I know that uh, it was kind of lucky that they found fire ants. Not lucky they were there, but lucky that they identified them while there were still only a small number of nests. It was actually a team that was working on the, um, the browsing ant infestation and had some detected dogs over there that had been on loan from the Queensland fire ant eradication team and uh, they happened to find them uh, when they were looking for browsing ants, which is uh, pretty fortunate. Browsing ants are another species of invasive pest ants. They're uncommon, but if they were to have a similar outbreak like the fire ants, they could do some serious damage. But enough airtime for browsing ants, we're talking about fire. Reese said that there are fire ants in the park near where he lives, but is lucky that he hasn't been bitten. One of the ways that they have caused over 85 deaths in the United States is people have an anaphylactic reaction to fire ants when they're bitten. Um, there can also be other things that happen, like secondary inf infections or um, you know shock and trauma responses. So if you think you've come into contact with fire ants, get some medical attention straight away. We've been lucky in Australia um, that and the people who have been bitten haven't had a reaction. The murderous little beasts. 
Fire ants have killed people, but how have they gotten away with murder? Yeah, they're an extremely aggressive invasive species. They um, have a pheromone ability where um, they effectively do an ambush when they're responding to a threat on the uh, on their nest. They'll um, get onto the body of the attacker, whether it's a human or an animal, um, and they will essentially wait until there's a significant number of them in position. Then a pheromone signal will go out that says, you know, attack now, and they'll all effectively um, uh, sting simultaneously. And that's where you see some of the really gruesome pictures of people, you know, it looks like they've suffered, you know, burns to parts of their body just because of the prevalence of the fire ant sting, the number on their body have actually caused them, you know, caused the, them to have that, that response. You know, the actual um, effect of a single fire ant sting is quite small. If you're looking at it on a pain scale, you know, it's it's comparable to a, a bull ant, um, yeah, to a bull ant. Um, but really, it's about that ability to, you know, attack on mass that makes them quite different. And, you know, they're very Titan-esque in terms of the fact that they're relentless attackers. Reese is referring to Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson has a face tattoo. So ever since Reese told me they're Tyson-esque, I keep imagining fire ants running around with face tattoos, which I guess is fitting for their aggressive energy. But fire ants can have a significant impact on agriculture and the environment in Australia. They reduce agricultural output by 40% and cost Australia about $2 billion a year. We know that in areas of southeast Queensland, where if they had reached prevalent numbers, we would have seen a 95% decrease in frog populations, as an example. Ground nesting birds are particularly vulnerable. Um, anything that really gives birth to live young on the ground. Another thing that people were surprised about in recent years that uh, we've seen through the uh, what's happening in Florida with uh, our American uh, friends researching it over there is they've gotten into beach environments and they're really attacking turtle populations and turtle nesting areas. Um, both when when the eggs are being laid and obviously when the, the young turtles are hatching as well. But the other thing that happens with fire ants is they are quite aggressive at attacking the root systems of vegetation. Um, so they can actually cause native vegetation to die. And so it's not an exaggeration to say that they would send our bushland silent. For such a small animal, it's hard to believe that they could have such a big impact. They're worse than cane toads, feral cats, foxes and rabbits combined in terms of what their impact would be on the environment and on you know the agriculture of the country. So we need to take them pretty seriously. Um, you know, they are demonstrably worse than a cane toad because fire ants can cause fatalities in humans. Um, there's only also only a limited range that a lot of those other uh, invasive species can occupy, whereas a fire ant can go anywhere on the continent. Um, it's a nationwide problem and everyone's at risk. Fire ants are now considered a global super pest, found across all continents except Antarctica. But it's difficult to imagine how something so small has been able to travel so far. Fire ants are sort of pirates. They stow away, um, you know, they hitch rides in cargo, they cross oceans, they cross continents. So it's really, it's a simple matter for them to get, you know, across the country if, if we let them get out of control. Um, 
most of the fire and incursions in Australia have come from overseas sources. Um, the one in Fremantle was genetically traced back to the United States directly, um, uh, which, you know, the assumption would be that it's come out from Queensland, but most of these are new incursions through our border. Um, we need to make sure that we're really putting the resources in because, you know, it's a stitch-in-time situation. If you stop something coming in, then you don't have to spend the millions and millions of dollars to try and deal with it once it's here. Beyond, you know, stowing away in cargo, one of the other key ways they spread is they form rafts, big ant rafts during flooding events, and they'll just let the floodwaters take them to a new area, and that's where they'll set up a new colony, a new nest. Uh, and, you know, that's one of the things that they've evolved from living, evolving in the flood, floodland environment in uh, South America. Now, this raft is not your typical raft. It's a horrifying, disgusting mass of ants with half of the ants underwater and the other half guiding the ants like the captain of a boat. To stop the underwater ants from drowning, they swap every so often like penguins in a huddle. As well as having angry face tattoos and wearing pirate hats, fire ants are excellent at building these rafts. But what I was even more interested in was how can they actually survive in all of these different places? They love the floodplains of South America, but are found in arid Australia and sandy Florida. They're proving to be extremely adaptive. Two things seem to be happening. One is the ants are actually adapting. So they're adapting to survive better in colder environments, in environments with less rainfall, at higher altitudes, and in sandier soil, which is the beach environments. Um, but also climate change seems to be a driver for ant infestation as well. It's actually expanding the range that they can inhabit. And when they did the modelling 20 years ago, you know, 95% of Australia was suitable already for fire ants. So with a little bit of adaptability, with a little bit of climate change, the whole country is under, uh, at, at risk. And, you know, it's remarkable how, like, the gifts that evolution has given the fire ant to be able to survive in all of the areas that humans are able to survive in. Australia is focused on the eradication of fire ants, but how can we get rid of something so small and so aggressive that is an excellent boat builder and, in my imagination, has face tattoos? One of the most interesting immediate responses when you find a fire ant nest is direct nest injection. They just open the nest up with a shovel, um, put a, a hose of insecticide in there and fill it up. And over a couple of days, that nest will die. Um, the most efficient way that they're dealing with fire ants at the moment is, is baiting. Um, it's broad scale baiting with uh, an insect growth regulator or a fast release insecticide. And fire ants have uh, foraging um, instinct, so they'll uh, send out worker ants to bring food back to feed to the queen to create new ants. Um, and the insect growth regulator actually uh, turns off that foraging in- instinct effectively is a way to think about it. So eventually the, the colony just dies because it's not foraging anymore. While these techniques work, they're very resource and labour intensive, but there have been some technological breakthroughs. It's a bit of a cliche these days because it's sort of like the answer to everything, but drones is one of them. <laughs> and, uh, with drones, you can be a bit more precise and a bit more specific about where you're actually doing that baiting work. But the other breakthrough we actually need is detecting fire ants and environmental DNA, eDNA screening, 
um, being able to take a sample from a, a you know from a particular area or a field or a paddock or an environmental area and run it through a scanner and actually work out you know is there fire ant DNA uh, in this sample that we've taken because if there is well that's where we're going to send out our teams to do an intense ground survey to find the fire ants now if we can get those things out on the ground in Australia really increases the chances of eradicating fire ants. This all seems well and good, but for aggressive ants who can literally turn themselves into a boat to surf floods and has the capacity to occupy 99% of Australia, how can we actually get rid of something so persistent? This is one of the things that's currently happening in Fremantle where fire ants uh, were found, um, is that they're at the moment doing what's called the... uh, post-eradication surveillance, where there's a period of a number of years where surveillance work continues on the assumption that there are probably fire ants somewhere, so let's find them. And if we don't find them in X number of years, then we're probably free of fire ants, and we can say with a fairly high confidence level that they're not here anymore. That's you know probably a decade's worth of eradication work and then years and years of post-surveillance work after that to make sure that they're gone. We're at a bit of a critical moment now. Uh, We've got tactics that work. Let's scale them up and get the eradication done. Reese believes that fire ant eradication is on Australia's immediate horizon and we could be the first country in the world to get rid of them. It's incredible to learn that humans aren't the only animals shaping and responding to the environment. Mammals, birds and insects do it too. And in more surprising ways than I ever could have imagined. Never would I have thought that a murderous boat-building ant colony could turn themselves into a raft to travel. These animals and landscapes are deeply intertwined, each flowing with the way that fire shapes our landscapes. Thank you to Kat and thank you for listening. The last episode of this season of Elements is out next week and you can listen to previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. For our final episode, producer Danny Stewart takes that great ball of fire in the sky, the sun, as the starting point for a journey through Noongar language, kelp forests and climate memory. In the meantime, visit us at particle.scitech.org.au for more WA science content. You can find a link to the transcript and citations of this episode in the show notes. This episode was hosted by Beth Maskell. Produced by Kat Williams. Our executive producers are Michelle Aitken, Sound design was by Michelle Aitken, Alicia Gitani. And artwork was by Gabriel Ibias. We'd also like to thank our guest experts for this episode and And a special thank you to Michael Gatt, Lisa Larson Henry, and everyone who helped make this season possible. This Particle podcast was powered by SciTech.